have I seen righteous before me in this generation? Meaning the entire generation and that age of Noah's day and the days of Noah, Noah alone was found to be righteous with imputed righteousness because he had trusted the Lord's promise and his provision. So therefore God had now on Noah's account, he had seen his own righteousness, even the righteousness of his son. What we find is that Noah is not just righteous by his works, but he is righteous by profession of faith in the Lord. And because of this, he will be spared, he will be used of God to preserve the world. Uh, as we see in the Scriptures, that it's going to be through Noah that, that, the, that the rest of us got here. If Noah doesn't get on the boat and obey God, the Bible ends in, in Genesis 7, right? Human history ends in Genesis 7. And so this is the wonderful thing that what we find is that while there is such great judgment upon billions of people in one fell swoop, yet we find that God is gracious in His judgment to allow the creation to preserve even though humanity itself as a whole has gone against Him, has rebelled against Him time and time again, God is gracious in His judgment. He then gives instruction, which we'll get into tonight. Of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female, of fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. For yet seven days... And I will cause it to rain upon the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living substance, notice that every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. And Noah did according unto all that the Lord had commanded him. And Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of waters was upon the earth. And Noah went in, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean beasts and of beasts that are not clean and fowls and of everything that creepeth upon the earth. There went in two and two unto Noah into the ark and male and the female as God had commanded Noah. We find several times this phrase that God commanded Noah. First in verse number one, he invites Noah. Come in the ark, right? Uh, and Noah goes by faith. We find the importance of this. Then we find the commands that God gives. We find that Noah, though, responds by faith. This is the proper attitude of the believer. This is the right response of God's creation in and of itself. When God speaks, we obey. Now, I want to look at something uh, just to begin. This is not in, in the notes tonight, uh, but we'll kind of look at this as we get into verse 4 as well. But I want to begin by looking at this idea. If we go back to verse number 1, the Lord said to Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark. Now, last week we talked about the importance of the ark being a picture and a type of Christ, that one must be saved, one must be placed in Christ, imputed, covered by His blood, cleansed by His blood, clothed in His righteousness, and that we are in Christ, the ark, our ark, our true ark, our eternal ark. We are now safe from everything that would ever befall us, and that ultimately we are safe and secure, not just through the storms of life that rage for more than 40 days and 40 nights, but through um, eternity itself. And that we can be rest assured that if we are in Christ, we are in the safest ark and the only safe ark that there is. But I want us to understand something more than that tonight. Noah is a man here that is going to be used of God. As a matter of fact, you could even call him God's man at this point. The reason why is because he's the only one that is found righteous before him. He has found grace in the eyes of God. He has responded to God's grace by faith. That is what salvation is. That's what sanctification is. That's what the Christian life is as a whole. God gives grace. We respond by faith. We trust in His provision of His grace. But tonight I want us to understand this, and this will be sort of the theme as we look through tonight. 
But Noah must not merely come into the ark, but he must abide in the ark. The ark will do Noah no good if he goes into the ark and once the rain starts coming, he panics and jumps out. It will do him no good if Noah begins to care more about the storm outside of the ark than the refuge that the ark is. Now here's what we're getting at tonight. We've got to understand that you and I must not merely understand and believe and be assured that we have safety and security eternally, meaning that we won't lose our salvation. We've got to understand that the rest of our Christian life is flowing and based from our secure state being in the ark of Christ, and that now we must abide in Him. Noah is not merely called to hunker down in a big old boat for a while and, and, and ride the storm out. Noah is called to abide in the Lord Himself. You and I have got to learn to abide in Christ if we are going to be used when the storm comes. You and I have got to learn to abide in Christ because when we get off the boat and the storm's over and God decides and wants to use us and to, to continue the story here, like Noah, we've got to understand that we've got to learn to be in Christ before we will be used of Him. Now, Noah's being used of Him here. Certainly we would say that. He's built the boat already and this sort of thing. But the greater work is to come. The first part of Noah's work was to be obedient to God by building the boat, but notice it was God that provided the instructions, God that provided the animals to come. We'll see that in just a moment. But the importance of Noah's life now is singular. He must by faith abide in the refuge of the ark that God has provided for him. This is our only strength that we have. This is our only sustaining power that we have. And this is ultimately what allows us to be used for the Lord. Now, as we pick up here tonight, verses 2 and 3, we find that God instructs Noah about the animals that are to be spared in the ark, both clean and unclean. Now, if you read chapters, Genesis 1 through 6, you know what you're not going to find at this point? The division of clean and unclean animals. As a matter of fact, what you're not going to see either is the Ten Commandments have not been given yet. The other laws of Leviticus have not yet been given. Why? Because well, we haven't even made it to Exodus yet. right? We're still yet in Genesis. So why do we have the clean versus the unclean? God is doing something here, and we're going to get into that. God instructs Noah exactly how to build the ark, and God instructs Noah about the animals that will come on because God knows every molecule in the universe. God knows every atomic particle. He knows every single being that he has created because there is nothing alive living breathing or dead and no longer breathing that god does not know about god knows it all because he created it all he sustains it all but notice he starts off he says of every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens he starts off with the clean beast and we'll get into this for just a moment here. He starts off, Phillips writes, he was to take seven of each kind of clean beast into the ark. He had already been told in chapter 6, verse 19, that the animals were to be taken into the ark by pairs, male and female. That's the only way that you will procreate. And so we find this. This is true biologically across the board. And this is important in our day and age because we are at a absolute beyond a crossroads in our generation. We are in a generation today that says you can be whatever gender you decide to be. It does not work that way. You are what you are. God has not made a mistake biologically, 
and making you and creating you. As a matter of fact, He has formed and fashioned everyone in the womb. He knows every single individual and every part and every strand of their DNA that you and I cannot even see, let alone fathom. We've got to understand that God has designed this for a reason. God is a God of order. What you and I find, the work of the devil often comes as chaos, confusion. That's what the devil does. He loves chaos and he loves confusion. And ultimately, chaos and confusion come from a departure from God's Word. God has given His Word and it is orderly, it is right, it is just, it is good. As Phillips continues, he says, those he had been told would come unto him, the extra clean animals were in anticipation of the new rule after the flood that man should henceforth eat meat. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> now he continues. He says, one of each seven was no doubt intended for sacrifice. Matter of fact, if you know the account of Noah's time, what you're going to see is after the ark, first thing he's doing, he's worshiping the Lord. Sacrifice will be made, an altar will be built. This is what the life of the Christian should look like, one of continued sacrifice. But it says, as the animals impelled by the same divine compulsion to stand before Adam for naming, so now they were impelled by the same divine compulsion to stand before the second head of the race for salvation. Any of you guys like me ever wondered how in the world the animals made their trek to the ark? I have, time and time again. You and I often think that Noah and his sons have to go out wrangling dinosaurs and little insects and all these different things that he's got to go out and wrestle them down. He didn't have to do any wrestling. He didn't have to go do any pig chasing, right? He didn't have to do any of this stuff. He didn't have to go out on a horse and do the figure eight barrel race and you know, throw his rope. None of that. The animals come to the ark. Why? Because creation, when God speaks, obeyed. Now, creation is still yet under the curse, but yet here, because God is going to preserve it, notice this, He has male and female. There's one male and one female that are going into the ark. There was no extras except for these clean animals, and they were used for specific purposes. We'll get a little bit more into that detail, and of course, we'll see it later on as we read the Bible. But what we've got to understand is that every other animal that is not on that ark will be dead. As a matter of fact, this is even further proof of the account of creation, a young earth, and the account of the flood, the fact that there are fossils. Fossils truly are not so explained by millions or billions of years, not even the hundreds of thousands of years, but rather what we find is that one giant, quick, beyond what we can imagine, catastrophic, cataclysmic event took place. It crushes everything. This wasn't like a big steady rain that you and I know or even a heavy severe storm comes by for four days and four nights and you know some, some water comes down and they just get soaked to death. It's not how the animals died. Everything died with absolute violence and force. Enough to cause the entire world to shift and to change in a matter of seconds and the very matter of God breathing out judgment with His words we find that all of creation that is not in that boat is annihilated. Now, you and I don't really see all this in this passage, but can you imagine this? You and I, we, we see, uh, I've seen little cartoons of, of things like, if you've got to fight, fight like the third monkey on the ramp to the ark and, and it's starting to rain, right? 
We hear jokes and things about that sort of thing. Now, it's, right, it's funny to laugh at. There was no third monkey trying to go, hey, wait, I got a ticket. There's none of that. There's two by two by two by two by two and on down the line. Right? Every clean beast thou shalt take to thee by sevens. Now, the number seven is important here. Now, I want to go ahead and, and preface this by saying, and I, and I do it later on in the booklet as well, we can't get hung up on typology or numerology in the Bible. It's not just that these are guesses, but these are educated guesses by faith and inference, by looking at the context of Scripture as a whole from cover to cover. However, you and I can't get so hung up on them because what we do is we can start reading things in the Bible that just aren't there. All right, So we've got to be careful there. But seven is often viewed as the number of completion or perfection. We see that even in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with the seven days of creation. We find that in the way that you and I have a week, right? Seven days. We find this sort of completion, perfection, the way in which our day-to-day life is to be ordered. And ultimately that seventh day looking forward to the uh, eternal things. But as well with this idea of seven, these animals were clean. They were going to be set apart for a specific use. Ultimately, they're going to be set apart for God's use. And even these unclean animals, by the way, are set apart for God's use. There's nothing in this world that you and I can see or even not see that God is not using for His glory, for His purposes, for His plan to be fulfilled. Then we find this. Clean come in by sevens, the male and his female, and of beasts that are not clean by two, the male and his female. Now, with this, two is often the number associated with the unification of two into one. We've already seen this in Genesis already. This is seen in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 with the creation account both of both animals and mankind. It takes a biological male and female to procreate. We find that as the Lord talks about this, that the two have become one flesh with Adam and Eve. They were no longer viewed as Adam and Eve. It was Adam. God called them Adam, man. Together they were one. And so this is the importance of marriages, right? The two become one. It's no longer this person's life and that person's life. It's now they have one life. It's no longer this person's family and that person's family. They have family, right? There is a unification together. Now this is important because ultimately what we find is that God takes two separate beings to make another this idea of procreating as God had ordained in Genesis 1 for them to do so. We see it in Genesis 2, Genesis 3, Genesis 4. All the way throughout the Bible, what we find is this idea of continuing the seed. But ultimately, there's something more special than male and female that are in the ark here. We even find that before the animals are going in, male and female, God has already done that with mankind. What matters more than animals surviving or certain species of animals surviving is the fact that the human race survives. Why is that? Jesus has to come. And He has to be a man. He has to be in the flesh. And if all of mankind dies, then there's going to be no Messiah. There's going to be no ultimate redemption for creation. And creation would continue to still groan about always waiting something that will never come to fruition. What you and I find is that this is a part of God's plan. God is bringing these folks on. Now notice this. Let me ask you, do you think God knows that Noah has already sinned? Of course. Do you think God knows that Noah is going to sin after the ark and even after worshiping and when he gets off the boat? Yes. Do you think He knows about these sons and their character? Yes. Do you think He knows about their sons, sons, and their sons, 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 all the way down? Yes. 
God is continuing His grand purpose of redemption through the promised seed of Genesis 3.15. God knows exactly what He's doing. The animals will be providentially provided by God and point to several future theological themes I wanted to address here tonight for just a moment. There is a division between things that are viewed as clean or unclean according to the future law that would be given to Moses, given by Moses and through Moses, which includes the classification not just for animals, but for even the division of Jew and Gentile of this idea of clean and unclean. Now this would continue from the law all the way through even in Peter's day where Peter uh, has this vision that God gives to him and, and it's all these different animals and God says, arise, kill and eat. Peter says, well, not so, Lord. I've never had anything unclean. He says, arise, kill and eat. Not so. Of course, then he understands when it's, it finally goes through that the Lord has now presenting the gospel unto all. At first, of course, as Romans 1.16 tells us, that it went to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek, meaning the rest of the world. And that what Jesus had prophesied and told his disciples in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, is that now they were going to be his witnesses from Judea, uh, where Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then unto the uttermost parts of the earth. That idea of uttermost parts is not just different lands, but it's to the, the stranger, to the one who was not under the law, to the one who was the pagan, to the one who was the Gentile, the one that was even viewed by the Jews to be nothing more than dogs. They were viewed as unclean, even viewed by many of the Judaizers that Paul had to deal with as unworthy of the Gospel. I'm thankful that all of us are unworthy of the Gospel. That's why it's such good news in the first place. There's not a one of us worthy of being saved tonight. That's what the Gospel does in the first place. But this is going to be an important part throughout the rest of the Bible, this idea of clean and unclean throughout the times of worship. But I want to turn for just a moment tonight, if I can. Ephesians chapter 2. This is, their, this is what's good for us, right? You and I are going to see this idea of clean and unclean throughout the Bible. We're going to see it in the laws. You look and you study it. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through 22 gives us our great hope is that Christ has broken the wall of separation between that which was unclean and that which was clean, that which was Jew, that which was Gentile. He says, Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at the time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in the ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, meaning a unification. God has one church. He does not have a Jewish church and a Gentile church. He has one church. He has one body of Christ, one bride of Christ. It is those who are in Christ, those who have been born again. There is no white church, black church, Chinese church. There is the church. That's it. A unification. Now that's the beauty of what we see as well, pointing back to what we had dealt with, that number two of the male and female. Here we find two different things, yet brought together, unified by the blood of Christ. He goes on, he says, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were afar off unto them that were nigh. For through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints 
and of the household of God, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles, prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are built together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Furthermore, the idea of the clean and the unclean will deal with the future sacrifices of clean animals before God for worship and the shedding of blood for the remission of sins. But here's what Hebrews 9 tells us. It is that Christ is the greater and sufficient and perfect sacrifice. He is the Lamb of God that was slain. No longer is there needed to be the blood of bulls, goats, rams, or sheep, or any other animal that can cover our sins. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can cover our sins, and His blood is made available. The atonement is available, but it must be applied by grace through faith. God knows exactly what He's doing here. God is bringing death by the flood, but in order to do this, He is also bringing life through and after the flood. Though many will die in this case, what we're going to see is that life will come. Though there's going to be animals that die, yet God still preserves life. Though billions of humans will die in the flood, God will preserve life. Though we find, as we fast forward, ultimately we get to Christ's death, yet we find life through Christ's death and His resurrection. God, though, will also use unclean animals to do His bidding. I think of the ravens feeding Elijah and the birds feasting on the dead enemies of God in Revelation. Now that sounds like a real harsh thought to get to. But God sends him and says, go feast. Now this is something that we, we think of. God is providing for every little creature. God knows what everyone needs and provides. He takes care of the foxes. He takes care of the, the lilies. He takes care of the sparrows. He takes care of us. He takes care of His creation. He is a good and faithful and gracious God who knows how to take care of His creation better than what you and I ever could. Now, The survival of the animal kingdom further shows God's grace and His judgment and reminds us that the creation is awaiting its day of redemption. As Romans 8 discusses, that it's groaning and awaiting that day, ultimately that return of Christ where where the creation will be made anew, where the Lord Himself says, Behold, I make all things new. There shall be a new heaven and a new earth, right? wherein dwelleth righteousness. Out of judgment, God brings life. God brings renewal. And so what we find, and we have to keep in mind over the next couple of chapters as we deal with the flood, is this, that though judgment and death, God is bringing. However, He's doing so to bring about renewal, He's doing so to bring about life and the preservation of life. And ultimately, both in God's judgment and in God producing new life, we find that His glory is displayed. His character is known. God is revealing Himself perfectly and completely. Notice He says as well in verse number 3, The fowls also of the air by sevens, the male and the female, to keep seed alive upon the face of all the earth. God is not just thinking about giving Noah when he gets off the boat some, some pets or a, or a herd of cattle. He is thinking about repopulating the earth. As a matter of fact, as we get later on into this, as we look at the account of Noah, God is going to tell them, go out. But there's going to be an issue in a couple of chapters when we get to Babel. Instead of wanting to go out like God had said and to repopulate the earth that had been destroyed and needed renewal, 
They're going to say, well, let's make us a name and let's make us a city. Let's make us a tower. Let's make us something that we can be like God. We're going to find that disobedience brings the curse and the judgment of God. And that's exactly what had happened at this point to get us here. Now, verse number four. It says, for yet seven days, and I will cause it to rain upon the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living substance that I have made will I destroy from off the face of the earth. Now this same God here is the same here as He is in Revelation. He's the same here as He is in the Gospel of John. Same. He has not changed. There are some who read the Scripture and they read a verse like this and they say, well, the Old Testament God was a, a very, very jealous God, a very wrathful God. He's the same God. He's never changed. He is doing this out of a love for His creation because if it was only out of wrath, there wouldn't even be Noah and his family on a boat. There would be no boat. Matter of fact, if God was only mean in the Old Testament, there would have been no exit from the Garden of Eden. There would have been no blood shed to cover Adam and Eve. There would have been nothing past Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. That's it. That would have been the whole thing. We find God's love throughout all of this. We find God's grace. I want to focus here for just a moment tonight. For yet seven days and I will cause it to rain upon the earth four days and four nights idea here is Noah gets on the boat in verse number 1 with his family. God continues to speak to him these instructions and says in seven more days that's when I'm going to send the flood. So you can imagine this. Well, let me go ahead and do this. Y'all remember back in 2020 when, when everything shut down? Y'all remember that? And everyone, it was basically like, hey, whoever you live with at your house, congratulations, you're stuck with them for the next two weeks. Right? Some of you guys are right, good. We can get some stuff done here at the house. We can get the honeydew list finally caught up. We can uh, clean the gutters. We don't have to go anywhere. We don't have to go to Walmart. We can't even go to Walmart. All this stuff. And then by day three, all these families that were so excited, spent all this time together, are now going, this pandemic has got to be over now. Right? You've got to go back to work. I've got to go to the store. I've got to go somewhere. I'm going for a walk. Right? Staying in the house with one group of people for a week, let alone two weeks, right? Let alone a whole year and all these things. Here they got seven days. They're going to be staying in this boat. I want you to know they're not sitting around twiddling their thumbs. They've got an awful lot of work to do inside the ark. They've got a multitude of animals to take care of. They've got a multitude of preparations to take care of. But even beyond that, I believe the most important thing that they've got to do in that seven-day period, and I believe that this is, this is the whole idea of it, God is continuing to teach and reveal Himself to Noah at this point. You say, well, doesn't Noah already know Him? He does. But the moment you get saved, you know God, don't you? Do you know Him as well when you got saved as you do today? You've grown, haven't you? Why is that? It takes time. It takes God continuing to give and reveal Himself to us by grace and us continuing to respond to Him by faith. Without those two things, there is no growth as, in, as a Christian, as a believer. Now, I believe that this is important here that we've got to understand as I had started off the night looking at this idea of abiding, I believe that God is teaching Noah what it means to abide in Him. 
Outside of that ark is a generation throughout the world that hates God, that hates Noah, which is God's man, God's preacher, God's voice. He stood as a mediator before, between God and man to preach righteousness and repentance to a lost and a dying world, saying, you must repent. That's what the idea of preaching righteousness. In order to preach righteousness, you have to preach repentance. The two go hand in hand. In order to be righteous before God, if you sin before God, in order to be righteous before Him, you've got to do some repenting, don't you? Noah was not an easy preacher to probably get along with. He's preaching what God had told him to preach. It's not an easy message for the world to swallow. As a matter of fact, none of the world swallowed it at all. They spat it up. They rejected it. They hated it because they wanted nothing to do with it. Now for seven days... Many of us have often wondered, what was it like when the first raindrops started? What was it like when all these things happened? Was, was there knocking? Was there people screaming, hollering? Were they trying to get in the boat? To be honest, I don't know. We're not told. And if we were told either one, we would probably be horrified, to be honest with you. If we understood all the details between these lines, you and I would shrink back at the judgment that's taking place here. You and I think of Noah's boat, and we think of, you know, he's in a boat, things are good. We don't think about the destruction on the outside. Because we don't want to. We don't want to think about people dying and going to hell. The people here in chapter 7, when the the rain comes and the deluge comes and the flood comes, they've been in hell for 6,000 years, just about. Good 4,000. That's a long time. Have you thought about that? You know how long they've got to go? Forever. That's an awful thought. You and I have got to understand that we talked last week about verse number one, us being safe and secure in Christ. That's wonderful. But understanding that you are safe and secure in Christ will not do the rest of the world a bit of good. As a matter of fact, it will only do you but so much good unless you will learn to abide in who Christ is. Believe what God is doing here is showing him that unless he continues to abide, he will not be continue to be used. You say, what does that mean? Believe the reason why we get to a place where after the flood, Noah's first response is to worship God is because he gets to spend seven days shut up inside the ark. What you and I need more of in our generation is to be shut up inside of the ark. You and I know positionally tonight, theologically tonight, if you have been Uh, one who has trusted Christ, you've been born again, that you are now safe and secure forever. But I believe that there's something else that has got to happen in our life where we understand that we are now shut up inside of Him, that He is everything that we need. Here at this point, for those seven days of waiting for the flood, and even for the continued while the flood comes and the rains come 40 days, 40 nights, and the waiting for the waters to, to go off so that way they can get off the boat and onto dry land, Noah understands every day that he is on that boat that he is completely in the hands of God. He understands that everything in that boat God has provided. He understands that God's mercy is what is keeping the boat afloat. He understands that it is God's grace alone that has saved him and now sustains him and strengthens him. What you and I need in our generation today is to shut ourselves up in Christ alone. We have got to get to the place where we are absolutely, utterly, and completely dependent upon Him alone. 
Because there is a world that is trying to get inside. There is our own hearts, our own flesh that deceive us and that tell us, well, what if we found just higher ground outside in the world? What if we climbed that high peak just over the horizon there? There's no safety there. The only safe place is inside that ark. The only safe place spiritually is in Christ. But here's what happens, dear believer, if we're not careful. You and I, we understand that we are in Christ, that we're not going to go to hell. We like that part about being in Christ, don't we? But you and I misunderstand and we miss the part that we've got to abide in Him for our continued day-by-day strength. You want to know how Noah was able to stay in that ark as we're going to see for well over 100 plus days with his family to take care of the animals before he gets off the boat? I believe it's because he learns that the boat is his safety in these seven days. He, he learns to walk with God even more in the confinement of inside this ark. You and I have got to see the beauty of what it means to abide in Christ moment by moment, day by day, breath by breath. Seven days, he's not merely just waiting for rain. For seven days, he's understanding that he's God's man. He's made himself available to the Lord. The Lord has been gracious to him and merciful to him, and Noah has put his faith and trust in the Lord alone. And as he looks around the ark around him, he sees the safety and the refuge. But I believe even more so, he finds that this is going to be the only thing that will sustain him throughout his days. And everything that is in there is available to Noah and is given to Noah for his survival and sustaining strength. Not just now while the storm rages, but after the storm. Notice, the animals are going to get off the boat too with Noah, aren't they? Matter of fact, the clean ones will come off and will be used for food and for sacrifice. God has given everything that is needed in Christ, not merely to keep us from drowning, but to sustain us all throughout our days. Now, turn with me for just a moment to John chapter 15. John chapter 15 here, what we're going to see is a very familiar passage. Verses 1 through 5, 6 here. See, abiding in the ark, it fills Noah with all that he needs to be God's man. To be used of God, not just to merely survive and get some animals from danger, but to continue the rest of the world, to repopulate, to revitalize the world around him, to replenish it by faith. Jesus is speaking to His disciples in the last few hours before He is betrayed. And He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husband. Every branch in Me that beareth not fruit, He taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, He purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in Me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except ye abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in Me. Let me pause there for a moment. The only reason why Noah was successful is not because Noah was extraordinary. It's because he found his abode in the ark. He went into the ark by faith in what God had provided. 
He put his faith in God's grace alone. You and I will only be as fruitful as we are trusting in God's grace, as we are trusting in God's power, in His provision, in His strength, as we are trusting in that God will do what He said He will do and He will bring forth fruit. The branch cannot produce its own fruit, can it? You ever seen an apple tree hanging low? Apples everywhere, right? Now the apples hang on the branches, don't they? However, those branches don't hang on by themselves, do they? You and I have got to see that Noah is not hanging on to himself. He's not clinging on to his family. He's not clinging on to the animals. He's not clinging on to his own preparation. He is clinging on to what God has provided. That alone will sustain Noah. Jesus says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. You can break that down any which way and the only interpretation that you can get is that you can do nothing apart from abiding in Christ. There is no spiritual fruit that you have ever had in your life that has come by your own accord. There is no spiritual fruit in my life, in your life, in any Christian's life that has come by our own good works, our own creativity, even our own faithfulness. Only through abiding in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Outside of abiding, there is no fruit. As a matter of fact, to abide in anything else, there will, you will be fruitless. We find that if Noah was to do things his own way at this point, there's not going to be any fruit. There's not going to be anything, as a matter of fact. He is trusting in the Lord alone. And when we see this wonderful picture of abiding in Christ, God tells Noah in Genesis 7, verse 1, Come thou into the ark. Much as the Lord Jesus tells the disciples, Abide in me. Not merely the command, but as well the invitation. Why? Because Jesus desires to provide everything that we need for our Christian life. Why? Because in our flesh we can't live the Christian life. It must be by the Spirit and only as we yield to the Holy Spirit of God within us that we find fruit in our life, that we find the fruit of the Spirit. As we abide in the flesh, there is no fruit of the Spirit there. It's only the fruit of the flesh, which is nothingness. It's wood, hay, and stubble. Noah here, I believe, is acting as a picture of this abiding work where the Lord has imputed Himself to Noah and invited Noah to abide in Him. And the two are now united together there in that ark. Now we've got to understand something very important here in the Christian life. We are not merely called to imitate Christ. We are called to participate in the union that we now have with Him. That we are dead in Christ, crucified with Christ, risen with Christ. That means this. His obedience is now applied to my account and that everything that, everything that He has given me comes from Him alone and He's given it to me so that He can live His life in me, through me, and for me. 
and that my life is no longer mine, it's His. And that everything in my life that is done is done not just for Him, but it's done through Him. It's done by Him. And Noah, in this moment, I believe in these days of waiting, is filled by the Lord in His presence to know Him, to abide in Him, and we find a man who is now truly fit to be used of God. This is where the rubber meets the road. You can have all the talent, all the knowledge, all the wisdom of the world, but until you learn to abide in the ark of Christ, there'll never be fruit. There'll never be usefulness of God. The reason why we find anyone in what you and I would call in Hebrews 11 the hall of faith is not because they were so extraordinary, it is because they found their abiding in the Lord. The Lord desires that we would abide in Him. He desires to give you everything that you need for the Christian life, and by the way, He has already. This is nothing that we must go searching for. Notice that Noah doesn't have to go fishing for food. When the storm comes down, he's not up top casting on a net, seeing if he can catch some food. None of that. Everything that Noah needs is in the ark. Now you and I said last week that this ark is certainly a picture and a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, is He not? So you and I can understand this. And we've got to make this connection. That we have now a unity with Christ. That we now are united, not just by Christ, but to Christ, in Christ, for Christ. We find that in this union, all that you need is found in abiding in the ark. So dear Christian, when things get tough or dry in your spiritual walk, do not haste and panic and run up to the top of the boat and poke your head out the window and start searching frantically for dry land, nor start rummaging for supplies, nor start looking for a, a lifeboat to get off the ark. Instead, look to the ark of Christ and see that all that you need is the very same thing that holds you and sustains you from the storm. Christ is what we need. As we look here, I want us to see this tonight with the impending judgment. God is the righteous judge. Every time God judges, He does righteously. There's nothing He does that is not righteous. God, in this word, in this day, in this universe, is the only one that has a right to judge in the first place. God specifically has laid out His law and the consequences for breaking it from the very beginning. You say, well, the law wasn't given yet, preacher. wasn't given until Mount Sinai. Baloney it was. Genesis chapter number 2, God specifically gives a law to Adam, does He not? All this is yours! Except for that tree right there. Don't eat of it. Why? Because I don't want you to? No, because God said you'll die. It was for His benefit. And this is why we must understand that the law was for the benefit of man. That we would know God. That we could be united with God in fellowship. 
Another seven days of grace are given before God brings the flood, the deluge, to destroy every living substance that verse 4 talks about that He had created. If we're not careful, you and I will forget to look back at Genesis 6, verse 6 and down. And it repented the Lord that He had made man of the earth and it grieved Him at His heart. God knows what He's about to do. To be honest with you, people that are lost, they don't like God. Jesus says that they even hate Him. They hate the light. Lest their deeds be reproved. The sad reality though is that many Christians don't like God. Now, here's what I mean by that. We say and we like the fact that God is love, that God is gracious, that God is merciful. We don't see how God's love and justice can coexist. Here's, here's what is happening here with this, up to this point in creation, in history. And here's what's even happening today that you don't understand, that I don't understand all the time, because we can't see it, to be honest with you. God has His justice that must be satisfied. With His mercy... He's holding it and giving them time to repent even yet still. He's given them 120 years and they got seven days yet more. They had every opportunity to repent. It was their hatred for God that caused them not to repent. It was their unbelief that caused them not to repent. It was never God's lack of patience. So with this hand, God is withholding His judgment that is righteous and just. With this hand, He is beckoning them. Come, abide. Come, come to safety. I am your only safety from my judgment. Unless you are in the ark of Christ, you will be crushed by Christ. But one day, this hand will stop beckoning. and This hand will stop holding. What happens here in chapter 7, after day number 7, the flood's going to come. The rain's going to pour. Judgment will come. This hand will no longer be offered to come to those outside of the ark. And this hand will no longer withhold the flood. You and I have got to understand that we're living in a day where right now, that you and I do not see nor understand. And if we did, it would one, drive our hearts to worship the Lord. And two, it would drive us to our knees to pray and to proclaim the gospel to everyone. The Lord, since the very foundation of all things, and even in these last days especially, is beckoning all to come. He's calling all people unto Himself. Come! Come! Before it's too late! But you and I have read the Bible and we know that soon this hand will stop beckoning and this hand will drop. And it will not be 40 days and 40 nights of a flood. There will be a literal seven-year tribulation. There will be absolute destruction. And billions who have not, by faith, came to the beckoning and pleading hand of God will be crushed by His righteous right hand that is withheld by His loving kindness, His just judgment you and I have got to do tonight is this. 
and we'll bring this spot to a close. We've got to see that God knows exactly what He's doing. What He's doing is this. He's preparing the world for the judgment that is due yet as well, beckoning them yet still to come. But That door to the ark is closed and this hand ceases and this hand is about to be dropped. But with both hands, He is inside of that ark molding a man. You see, God can do as He pleases. But what pleases God is to use a man. To use His creation. God desires to use you tonight. I want you to know that. The way in which He desires to use you is for you to abide in Him. We are only usable to the Lord as we abide in Him. We only find ourselves surrendered to His service as we abide in Him. You and I only find our safety even from Him as we abide in Him. Tonight, like Noah, like Christ told His disciples, what are we abiding in? I know each one of us tonight are thankful that we're safe and secure in the ark and we're not going to hell. But where are you drawing your strength and your sustaining power from? What are we living our life for in the first place? Are we trying to take care of the animals inside of the ark by our own strength or are we going to do it because God gives us strength to do it? Are we going to continue to try to find and muscle our own way through the Christian life or will we simply abide in the fruit that God has given and that is Himself? Will we continue to live frustrated Christian lives as we seek and search for a better way or seek and search for victory when the victory is already there? Noah did not have to find a new ark or victory or safety because he was already abiding in it. And you and I must see the same in our Christian life. There's much more to be said about what that is and how it entails, but the only way in which you and I will ever abide is the same way Noah find, found his abiding in the ark. And that's this. And this is the Christian life. And after this, I don't have to preach to you anymore, okay? You'll get it. By grace, through faith. Grace reveals, faith responds. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And what God called him to do, he obeyed him. Because what God expects of us, he equips us and enables us to do. The issue is you and I remain unequipped and unable, not because God has not provided, but it's because we're not trusting in what is provided. Abide in the ark of Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this night. Help us to abide in you. Lord, we talk much of it. and We know all the right things that we're supposed to do, Lord, but our flesh is awful weak. Help us, O oh Lord, to crucify the flesh daily, moment by moment, to be crucified and consecrated to you. God, that you would live your life through us, for us, and God, that we would be able to glorify You with every breath that You've given to us. Help us to abide as we see these dark days and the, the waters of Your judgment about to approach. Lord, we pray that your, your hand would continue to beckon and to plead. And Lord, that we would plead by prayer 
and that we would proclaim Your Gospel that others might be safe and secure in the ark of Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.